Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Nathan Moore. And I'm Eliza Wilson. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Well, later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Glaska, but right now we're joined here in the studio by Giles Morse. He's the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Also, news editor Elliot Robinson and news reporter Emily Hayes with Charlottesville Tomorrow. Thanks for coming in. Oh, we're happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Elliot, can you talk a little bit about the urban farm housing development and what's going on with that? As at City Council on Tuesday, because of the holiday, we... Uh, had a discussion about what was called Hogwaller Farm. Now it's been renamed 918 Nassau Street in the Belmont neighborhood. The property partially extends into Arbor County. The city council wasn't exactly happy with where the plan is at the moment, so it will be on the March meeting agenda. There will be another change to the conditions and another public hearing on it. But the the plan is for developer Justin Shimp to use the property on the Arbor County side for agricultural uses. There will be fields that are for lease and some sheds. And then on the city side of it, there would be two apartment buildings with about 40 apartments. It'll be a mixture of one and two bedrooms and there will be some affordable housing units. And the issue is that he would like to have the zoning change from two-family residential to highway commercial because at the moment that's the only way he could get a greenhouse built on the property. The fact that it is zoned highway commercial gives some people a bit of heartburn, although there are conditions of things that cannot be built there. Like, for example, he couldn't put up a fast food restaurant, which is an acceptable use under that zoning. And then the other issue is that since it's so close to Morris Creek, will it flood? They don't want, the city council doesn't want to approve housing that's going to wind up being underwater under the next big storm. Yeah, and many of the Belmont residents spoke out against the developments, right, in, with regard to the floodplains. Right, there's a few residents who were there who had lived in the neighborhood for years, and they can distinctly recall that there's been points where that entire road has been underwater and they're hoping to preserve this land to soak up some of that flooding. They're afraid that having the buildings and parking lots and other surfaces that the water can't percolate through is just going to make the problem worse, especially in the light of our changing climate and Mm -hmm. especially how rainy it's been in Charlottesville over the past few years. Well, thanks for the updates on that. Now we're going to turn to Emily. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the Crossings 2 project and what's going on with that? So the first crossing is the crossings at 4th and Preston. That's a apartment that's 30 apartments for formerly homeless individuals and 30 affordable apartments. So the idea is to do a second one of these, and that's been in the works for about a year and a half. But um, they just came up with a possible location for it. Um, and that would be on land owned by the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority. Um, Now, they're in the middle of a redevelopment of public housing, so there are a lot of questions of, you know, is this the right use? They're trying to look at at their various properties more holistically in the next phase. They're sort of 
um, you know, doing all sorts of last minute activities to finish up their application for um, redevelopment of public housing um, for the first phase. So it's sort of on the back burner until they finish that. But um, that that property that they're talking about is on Avon Street and Levy Avenue, right near Belmont Bridge. And Elliot, now let's go back to you. What's going on with the naming of schools in Albemarle County? We are at the very early stages of a committee being formed to review the name of Kale Elementary School. Back in October, there was a presentation to the school board which mentioned in the course of it statements that were attributed to Paul Kale, who was the longest serving superintendent in the county. It was heavily paraphrased, but the statements were very pro-segregation, and that prompted the school board chairwoman at the time to say that we should rename the school. After that, there's been people in the community and beyond who have been saying, well, wait a minute, we don't know anything about this guy beyond what was in this article that was written in 1956. So the school system has been trying to figure out exactly what else is there about Paul Kale that we can use to see whether renaming the school is appropriate or not. There, The information, there's a warehouse which has a lot of his writings in it that no one has reviewed yet, but that would be one of the tasks that the committee has. At the moment, it's going to be headed by former supervisor for the county, Dennis Rooker. And after they, the core group of him and a staff member from the central office and the, and the principal of Paul Kale Elementary School, they will gather community members and teach and teachers and parents of children at the school and they will come to an agreement of what should be done, submit that to the school board, and from there it will be whether the school gets changed, the school name gets changed, or if they keep it. And if it comes to a conclusion that the name will be changed, it will go back to this committee and they'll hold some community sessions and they'll come back to present a new name. Nathan, I was going to ask then, what's what's kind of the, the overarching theme for the week? What do we see in, uh, as the city moves forward? We've got some development projects, there's the renamings, and a lot of grappling with this history of segregation. Uh, what's our what's our key takeaway from the week? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the clearly the two projects at different sides of Belmont are an interesting lens on what's going on in both development and redevelopment, and how those time cycles are moving along in parallel and um, really test the frameworks of planning and policy structures that are in place that are also in evolution right now. Um, the SHIMP development has been quite a saga um, and I think has revealed that um, in many ways um, developers who are trying to do creative things or non-traditional things um, have really no playbook to follow right now. Um, and so they end up in these kind of fairly politicized uh, special use permit hearings um, that are really challenging to navigate um, if you're dealing with a prospectus and a timeline for, for development. And, um, you know, with the, the crossings, I think you see um, a really cool idea that a lot of people are behind, but then emerging into a landscape where 
uh, the, the, the larger scale redevelopment of Charlottesville's public housing is, um, is, is on the front foot for the first time in a long time. And it's a public-private partnership uh, between CRHA and Riverbend Group. Um, and there's an MOU in place, and they've got to now look at all these sites and create plans, how they move it all forward. The renaming stuff is just kind of another lens on this conversation of the race and equity station in, in the county schools. A lot of the energy and focus has been on hate-free schools and their interface with the county around Confederate imagery. Um, but this is kind of uh, maybe a substructure to that same conversation. Um, and I think what was interesting to me about this story and the district's reaction is that when it comes down to it, the district doesn't have a real operational consciousness of its own history of integration. Kale was the superintendent who integrated the county schools. Yeah. The way the schools and the district were laid out, he also was the architect who modernized the county schools. So you have the sort of contemporary blueprint infrastructure of the district was created by the same guy who also led integration, but perhaps resisted integration. Well, clearly resisted it in some respects. Um, the county really dragged its feet on integrating the schools. So credit to Matt Haas, uh, the superintendent, for kind of uh, taking a step back and taking a bigger picture view and, and, and reacting to it and, and naming a commission to think things through and, and to try to dig deeper and not be so reactive around these conversations. All right. Uh, anything else to add here as our week uh, ends and turns toward the next one? I would want to add to the the Kale conversation. I know that the county has a new office of diversity and inclusion, and it's led by Siri Russell, and they are working on working through and talking about and and putting up public markers and public displays of the county's history um, related to race. So I think that's something where where the history of the county's integration is going to um, become more public knowledge as that office does its work. Cool. Well, Giles, Elliot, Emily, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Giles Morris is the executive director of Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson's the news editor, and Emily Hayes is a reporter there. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and Tej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on the show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. Well, welcome back to Soundboard. We turn now to our regular correspondent on state news and politics, Peter Galaska. He's a journalist based in the Richmond area. Peter, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Uh, so let's start things off with uh, former President, Vice President Al Gore and Reverend William Barber. They were in Buckingham this week there to oppose a compressor station. That's part of a mm-hmm. proposal that Dominion wants to build as part of its pipeline project. Uh, take me through what's going on. Why were they there? Well, what, Dominion won approval from the Air Pollution Control Board to build a compressor station uh, at a key pump, uh, point, and I guess it's $7 billion now or $6 billion. I can't keep track of it. Anyway, they need this uh, station to, to keep the gas flowing. Unfortunately for some, uh, they chose to put locate this in the middle of an historically African-American community that raised a lot of, um, of, of trouble. Now, 
it gets more complicated uh, because just before um, the Air Pollution Control Board was to give an air pollution permit to or, or to consider an air pollution permit for the gas pipeline, um, Governor Ralph Northam decided to change the, the or replace two, two uh, regulators on the board who had indicated doubts about the project. Now, these people's terms had expired the previous summer, last summer, but the timing of Northam uh, of replacing them was indeed odd. Uh, Northam had enjoyed a good relationship for the most part with, uh, say, you know, left-leaning, centrist, and progressive Democrats, but this really made them angry because when the two new people voted, you know, along, and now you have the permit. And this makes it look especially bad because of the whole blackface Ku Klux Klan incident in which Northam was accused of posing, in, you know, as one individual or another in a picture in a yearbook. And then you have uh, Attorney General Mark uh, Herring, a fellow Democrat, um, uh, who also admitted appearing in blackface. Add to this the lieutenant governor, um, Justin Fairfax, who happens to be African-American, has been accused of uh, sexual assault in separate cases in North Carolina and in Massachusetts. So... All of these cases have gotten really unwanted national attention for Virginia Democrats who had been on something of a roll. And now you have um, Al Gore, who, of course, wrote the book on uh, global warming and is uh, a very powerful symbol of, of the Green Movement, is coming and, and sort of saying, well, we're trying to regain the moral high ground here along with our Reverend Barber. So it's a very interesting situation. In the last year, there have been occasional reports about the Buckingham Compressor Station, and, and this perhaps being an example of environmental racism, where you locate the stuff nobody wants in a black community. Um, with Northam's blackface controversy and sort of his, his uh, checkered record so far on the pipeline issues anyway, <laughs> does this, is there new momentum for, for stopping the compressor station? Well, I don't think on, on the permit itself, the air condition, uh, air pollution control board permit. I personally, I would see that that I don't think you can do it. I don't think you have a legal basis. But what the, what really could do it in would be to have so many court challenges, such as the Southern Environmental Law Center and other people have had, that it's going to really ratchet up the price. It's already gone up a couple billion dollars in a couple years. And there's got to be, and I don't think anybody knows that, when Dominion and its uh, two other partners both other utilities in the South, are, are going to say, wait a minute, we can't afford this. See, we, we've gone past the price mark where it's too expensive. So if there's any result in that regard, it would just be to delay it more, to raise the pressure on to delay it, and then it goes away. Well, Peter, a moment ago you brought up uh, Justin Fairfax, lieutenant governor here in Virginia, and he has uh, uh, some possible legal trouble, but certainly a, a big public relations trouble with these uh, accusations of sexual assault from some years ago. Um, uh, you mentioned the case. The, the Democratic leadership wants this to be handled by law enforcement to the extent it's necessary to do so and, and needed. Um, Kurt Cox, over uh, the Republican uh, leader in, in the state assembly, uh, he wants to make it a big legislative thing uh, to kind of have pub big public hearings, uh, which potentially yeah. could... Well, I'm not that clear on, on the impeachment for this because of the alleged crimes that they did occur happened years ago. And it's not something that happened while, while uh, Fairfax is, has been in office, which has been a little more than a year. And, of course, I think what the Democrats want is they want to say, well, we don't want to turn this into a political football right during an election year, come you know, when the whole General Assembly is up for re-election in November. 
And, of course, the Republicans are, can t- try to say they're taking the moral high ground, and they want to really get to the bottom of this. And, uh, it, you know, this is serious stuff. I mean, you know, the accusations are serious. Now, um, in Massachusetts, the statute of limitations for sexual assault is 15 years, which would run out in July. So there could be moves there to uh, take action. I looked it up, and I don't believe North Carolina, where a woman at Duke University says she was assaulted by Fairfax, even has a statute of limitations on sexual assault. So there's time there. So what do you do? Do you file charges in either North Carolina or Massachusetts or both, and then go to an impeachment if there's a conviction, or do you try to do something in the General Assembly? That's the key issue. And obviously, um, you can, the politics to me are obvious, but I just don't know enough about the law to really, because I don't think this ever happened before in Virginia. Well, on the politics of it, what comes next? What, what happens with this? Well, I mean, you're going to see the tussling over the moral high ground. I mean, it's kind of ironic. Um, I think we had some conversations uh, yesterday or the day before about this, just how ironic it is that some, some key um, Republicans um, in the General Assembly are, are trying to get to the bottom of, of you know, this and, the other, uh, and racism and everything else, when, on the other hand, I mean, you had Corey Stewart running as a Republican for um, the Senate, and, and it was just really, you know, he was a neo-Confederate. I mean, it clears the, you know, your hand in front of you. And the other thing that's happened is that in at least two occasions, uh, federal judges have uh, required um, uh, election districts to be redrawn because they were unfairly packed by Republicans by design to limit African-American voting power in nearby districts and keep the, and that would be diffuse African-American influence in, in, in politics. All right. Well, let's close. I want to t- spend the rest of our time today talking about a piece you ran in the Washington Post uh, about casino gambling in Virginia. Uh, for years, Virginia has not allowed casino gambling with roulette tables and all that, but that's about to change in a big way. Boy, this story seems to have everything in it. Can you take me through what's going on? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, Virginia's had horse racing. It's going to return this summer. They've had, um, you know, of course, a lottery that, you know, helps schools out. But there's been a, there are serious proposals now to have casino-style gambling. Now, what type that is, we don't know yet, but it could be the, the whole thing, Las Vegas or uh, Atlantic City-style with roulette wheels and one-armed bandits, et cetera, et cetera. And it began uh, a couple years ago when the Pamunkey uh, Native American tribe um, well, first off, a number of tribes were finally recognized as tribes by the federal government, and somehow the Pamunkey tribe out of seven or eight was the only one that got uh, the, abil- the federal ability to start a casino. And that started all kinds of talk about casinos um, from everywhere, from Bristol to Norfolk, Portsmouth, um, to, um, I believe, Danville to Richmond. And it's all kind of coming out all of a sudden. In the West, you've got coal barons like um, Bill McLaughlin, who is the big, you know, uh, rich uh, and powerful coal executive. It wants to put a, a, a casino in Bristol because that would help the coal-depressed area there by providing jobs and, and tourism act, uh, activities. The same argument goes for Danville, which, of course, is somewhat under the gun because of the textile and tobacco and furniture failures. And meanwhile, um, the Pamunkeys have proposed one proposal near Williamsburg, and now they want to have a proposal to, to have a, a big casino in Norfolk. And that kind of got a, another fight going, because uh, the Pamunkeys, are, uh, their homelands are just sort of northeast of Richmond. And um, 
But the Mansimum tribe, another Native American tribe, which is down near Suffolk, say, wait a minute, uh, that's, that's, that's not your historical ground. You really don't have any right to do this. Well, actually, they do have a legal right because they're the only tribe that has the right to do it on a federal basis. Meanwhile, you've got the state considering um, allowing some kind of casinos, gambling-type casinos for the other ones, but there's so much that has to be figured out, like where the money will go, what the split will be, what the, fed, the state will get, what the localities will get, and it's going to be kicked to next year before it really happens. You'd have to have, a, on the state stuff, you've got to have a referendum anyway in the localities. So there's a lot of players here. What, what, what do we, is there any update coming in the next 12 months before the next assembly session? Well, or? I think what's going to happen, I think it's going to happen. Um, I don't know where and when. Uh, they kind of threw in the Richmond areas as a possibility. Uh, Norfolk, Portsmouth, I don't think there's enough space there. Um, I know that in the Washington area, in northern Virginia, MGM just across the bridge into Maryland has one, and a lot of northern Virginians go across there to, uh, to casino-style gamble. And we'll, but there are plenty of them around now. All right, Peter. Well, thanks much, and we'll keep following right. this one, I'm sure. Okay, take care. Thank you. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Well, welcome back to Soundboard. Uh, for more on Al Gore's and William Barber's visit to Buckingham this week, we turn to Virginia Public Radio. It was a combination protest, spiritual revival, and celebration as about 800 people packed the gym at a middle school in Buckingham County to hear from environmental activist Al Gore and political activist William Barber. They had come to oppose the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and construction of a massive compressor station in the historic black community called Union Hill. Sandy Houseman was there and filed this report. If Al Gore was the evening's big star, the Reverend William Barber was quite a warm-up. He attacked Dominion, the company planning a massive compressor station in a poor rural community founded by freed Virginia slaves, and said companies often refer to places like Union Hill as Lulu's, short for local unwanted land use. Hazardous waste facilities, solid waste disposal sites, contaminated industrial sites, and now pipelines and compressors. They are disproportionately placed in poor communities and black communities because they think they are Lulu's. This ain't no Lulu, this is holy ground. He said this kind of development was a sign of systemic racism and called on Virginia's embattled governor, Ralph Northam, to take a stand. And Governor Northam, the first thing you ought to do is tell Dominion I was wrong, but I'm going to do right now. He lambasted other politicians for taking campaign money from Dominion and scoffed at the company's claim that this state's air pollution permit was the strongest of its kind in the nation. If you got a deregulator in the White House deregulating everything, then saying what you just did was the strongest in the country is not saying anything. And secondly, Governor, if it's so good, request it to be in your backyard. Dominion says the compressor station will comply with EPA regulations and will pose no threat to public health. 
The company has offered Buckingham County $5 million for a new community center and to improve local emergency medical services. But Barber and his audience weren't buying it. Union Hill shouldn't have to get those things from Dominion. The state of Virginia ought to be investing in community centers and better rescue squads. When it was his turn to speak, former vice president and environmental crusader Al Gore conceded Barber was a tough act to follow. Michael Jordan, he's my favorite basketball player. One time he scored an unbelievable 95 points in one game. It was just incredible. And one of the sports writers interviewed a rookie on Michael Jordan's team. He had scored one point. And he said, what is your reaction to this game? He said, I'll always remember this as the time when Michael Jordan and I combined for 96 points. I want you all to know I'm going to always remember this as the time when Reverend William Barber II and I combined to issue a moral call for ecological justice. In fact, Gore scored plenty of points with those who had braved a wintry weather forecast to be here. These compressors emit a lot of pollutants that cause a lot of conditions that threaten human health. This is what... For the next 16 seconds, the crowd was subjected to a deafening recording of an existing compressor station. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Dominion says the nearest home will be one quarter of a mile away, and it pledges to plant trees and bushes around the facility. The company claims more low-priced gas will be a plus for Virginia, causing less pollution than coal and sparking economic development. Opponents at the rally said the fastest-growing jobs in the U.S. were solar panel installers. In Buckingham, I'm Sandy Houseman. At Virginia's State House, lobbyists are everywhere. They meet with lawmakers, help draft bills, testify in committees. Reporter Mallory Nopain spent one day this week with a surprising group of lobbyists, teenagers, who have successfully convinced lawmakers to close one of the state's juvenile prisons. A small group stands in a corner of the state capitol's crowded lobby. James Bracton, one of the adults, goes through their agenda for the morning. Our objectives are ending the school to prison pipeline. They're with Rise for Youth, and they advocate against incarcerating kids. Braxton sets off with two teens who are here today to share their own experiences with the criminal justice system. They start with Delegate Lasharice Aird. Because both of these kids are 18 or under and they're sharing personal information, we won't use their last names. Doug served seven months for a crime he says he didn't do, having a gun. I had to, I had to actually like get incarcerated to like get services. So like I'm like here to say like re reinvest in more supportive environments and have more closest facilities like closer to home. Their lobbying helped convince lawmakers to close Beaumont Correctional Facility, one of the state's youth prisons. That was a couple summers ago. Doug remembers it as a huge accomplishment. And I was relieved for um, the people that they was about to send there because <laughs> I woke up. I was feeling bad for them. Since then, they haven't settled. They want lawmakers to continue to close prisons and reinvest the savings in smaller, therapy-based programs. They come back each year, pushing lawmakers to consider their experiences. Is it easy to come into a building full of adults and talk about personal stuff? 
Nah, but I mean, it feels good in a way. Because you're telling them what you want. For the most part, they say everyone in this building is welcoming and wants to hear what they have to say. Delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy says nothing is more powerful to lawmakers than personal testimony. When you actually can put a face and a name with um, an issue, then I think it makes it more tangible, makes it more real, and you understand the urgency of needing to address this issue. At the next stop, an aide comes out, says the lawmaker they had an appointment with isn't that's, available. Yeah, that's what happened last time. That same lady and that same that same delegate, they're too good to hear what we have to say. Kadaya says advocating in this building can be hard sometimes. Doug says he gets tired of repeating himself year after year. Like, don't you think they get it by now? Or should should have got it two, three years ago? I don't know. Maybe if, if, if their child was in prison, or if they, they was in prison, most of these people ain't, ain't never seen what the inside of a jail look like. Or the inside of a courtroom, if that. It's easy to turn down something. That's where our conversation ends. An aide comes out, tells them the next lawmaker is ready to see them. They head inside an office overlooking Capitol Square, then tell their stories one more time. In Richmond, I'm Mallory Nopain. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Eliza Wilson. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Morwen Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or on our podcast home at TEEJ.FM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.